Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Authentic Walk. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you've been watching t- television this month, you probably have noticed the annual NCAA men's basketball tournament is uh, dominating media right now. A couple of years ago, while watching March Madness uh, on TV, I saw a segment uh, that a, a local, excuse me, a popular uh, late night talk show did where they, they, they sent a camera crew down to Hollywood Boulevard to do some sort of man the street interviews. Uh, there was a catch, though. The segment was called Lie Witness News, as in L-I-E, because the reporter wanted to see how far some people are willing to go in order to convince themselves and convince us they know the facts about something that isn't real. So here's how one interaction caught on camera ended up going. Uh, One young woman was asked by the reporter, hey, have you seen the NCAA tournament on uh, television, been watching the games this month? And she said, uh, yeah, I have, I have. And he said, uh, well, do you think Gonzaga University went too far when they recruited an eight-year-old basketball player to play on their team? And his name's just incredible. Have you heard of him before? Yeah, 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 yeah. So then the reporter says, well, what did you think when you saw Just Incredible, this eight-year-old basketball player playing for the Gonzaga Bulldogs? What did you think of him? Oh, he's amazing. He's really good. And so she goes on and she's trying to say, you know, give the impression that she knows what she's talking about. And the whole time she never asked, wait a minute, isn't it against the law or something to have an eight-year-old on a college basketball team? Or isn't it against NCAA rules? Or, I mean, she never, she never asked the question. But interestingly, I think the, one of the reasons why it was funny but also sad is that it proves something about people. We can be gullible enough to swallow a whole lie wrapped in a half-truth. It was true that Gonzaga University was playing in the NCAA tournament, but obviously not true that they had an eight-year-old player on their team. The Apostle John was aware of this in human nature, and he was also aware that deceivers exist in every community and generation. And so he wanted to address this topic of being easily deceived and gullible in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we're continuing our series called Authentic Walk in 1 John. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and uh, one of our ushers can bring one to you. Or if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to loan one to you. We want you to have a copy so that you can follow along. And for those of you that uh, uh, maybe haven't uh, been here before or you've been gone for a few weeks, like, I'm going to bring you up to speed on what you've missed so that uh, you can jump right in today and understand what John is talking about. Uh, there's a, a series theme verse that uh, we're memorizing as a church. It's printed on your sermon note handout, and it's going to be on the screen behind me. It's 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. Uh, let's read it out loud together. Whoever says, I know him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Uh, Throughout this series, we've been hearing this venerable 
ministry veteran pound uh, a nail just repeatedly uh, from various angles, and it's this simple truth. Real Christians really walk with Christ. Real Christians really walk with Christ. He has been telling us like a crusty old apostle with a tell-it-like-it-is boldness, if you claim to know Jesus, then follow him, then love him, love like him, sacrifice for him, and if necessary, suffer for him. He's also been telling us the inverse in different ways. Don't claim to know Jesus if you don't want to follow him, don't want to love him, don't want to love like him, and don't want to sacrifice or suffer for him. 1 John is a book of concern. It was written around 90 to 95 AD uh, by the last living apostle that served with Jesus, who was John, uh, the same uh, man that wrote the Gospel of John and also the book of Revelation. He wrote it 95 to 90 AD, and that, that date is important because it's It's more than 50 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. So John had been around a long time, and he had seen all of his friends and family die for the gospel. Uh, And towards the end of the first century now, it's, you know, 50 years after the early church had been started, he's seeing some scary trends starting to develop that he wants to counter-correct or counter-steer and go, whoa, we want to get back on track here. And, and, and as the guy that was the last living apostle to hear Jesus preach his message, he had a lot of credibility. And so, um, thus, our, our, one of the concerns that John addresses in chapter 2 and then today in chapter 4 is the issue of false gospels that were creating false converts. And so, thus, our big idea for today is this. Real Christ followers are discerning instead of dupable. And yes, dupable is a word. I checked. <laughs> I, I was not sure about that, and I checked a couple dictionaries. They are discerning instead of dupable. John is going to answer, at least in part, this question today for us, and that is, how can you tell the difference between a true teacher of the gospel and a false one? Now, you might be wondering, why is knowing the difference important? Well, because false teachers teach bad theology, and bad theology causes you to believe things about God that are not true. And because listening to the wrong teachers could land you in the wrong place for eternity. And so with that, if you would look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John says, Beloved, there's that fatherly... Uh, pastoral language that we've been seeing show up. Beloved, or dear friends, as it says in some translations. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here's the first thing that John tells us, number one on your outline, is that maturing believers, or excuse me, maturing Christians are discerning Christians. Maturing Christians are discerning Christians. He says, do not believe every spirit. The Greek verb tense that's used by John, it it literally could be rendered stop believing. It, It suggests that it was already happening, and John was seeing some already led astray by false teachers and false prophets. Some had already gone off the rails in their faith, and he's, he's wanting to bring them back and get them on track with the true gospel, back on point, 
back on target with what Jesus taught. And so the solution, the application that John gives us, in essence, is test the spirits. It comes from a Greek word that means to examine or to prove or to scrutinize. Uh, the word was used in the first century to describe the work of a metallurgist that would test certain metals to see if they were real by dipping them in acid to verify that they were not a counterfeit, but they were authentic. Notice in verse 1, he also says the problem is uh, it, was, it was quite widespread for many false prophets. Not a few, not, not just a handful or a smidgen, but many. Many is an adjective and a pronoun. And just out of curiosity, I looked it up in the dictionary to see what other words could be used for many. It means countless, droves, and in some cases an army. So what were these false teachers communicating that was so bad? Well, some taught that Jesus was not really God. Others taught that he was not really a man. Others taught that the resurrection didn't really happen. Some didn't believe in the Trinity. Some thought that all material possessions were sinful. All these distortions had significant implications that undermined God's desire to redeem people with the message of the gospel. Now, there are several places in the New Testament that warn believers not to be led astray by false teachers. Uh, it's not just showing up here, and there's, I'll explain in just a second why that's important, but here's just a quick survey of what I found when I searched the New Testament for false teachers, false prophets. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul corrected the Corinthians for believing false prophets. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 15. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul rebuked the Galatians for believing that circumcision was necessary along with Jesus for salvation. They had believed false teachers as well. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, Paul warned the church in Colossae, don't be deceived by um, empty philosophies and worldly thinking that false teachers are spreading. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, chapter 6, and 2 Timothy 4, Paul warned Timothy, who was serving in Ephesus, about false teachers. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Paul warned Titus, who was on the island of Crete, about false teachers. And then 2 Peter 2, he, in 2 Peter, uh, Peter devotes a whole chapter to false prophets. Now, why am I mentioning these uh, references? Well, here's why. Since almost every local church in the New Testament, Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae, Crete, Galatia, since almost every local church in the New Testament was dealing with false teachers and false doctrine, it means that there are false teachers in every generation, in every denomination, in every size of church, and in every community. They've been around since the beginning. They are tools sent out by the adversary to add to, subtract from, or make substitutions in the gospel because they cannot stop the spread of the true gospel. Now, if you've ever had children before or grandchildren in your home, 
uh, you know that it's a challenge to keep them, especially toddlers, from putting everything in their mouth. Um, they like to take TV remotes and um, door stoppers and all sorts of things and just grab it and put it in their mouth, right? Especially if they're teething. Uh, why? Because babies and toddlers don't know the difference between food versus a toy or food versus a phone. They just put anything in their mouth. Most parents have to implement a three-fold strategy like we did in our home. Um, we had to, first of all, watch our children at all times or assign an older sibling to watch them. And if we couldn't watch them at all times, we put them in a cage called a pack-and-play to contain them. And, uh, and then, then the other thing we did is we had to remove all objects from the play area where they would be or crawling around that could possibly be a choking hazard. Uh, and, then, and then the third thing we had to do is we had to teach them what real food was. That this is good, eat this, yay! Don't eat this, bad, don't do that, okay? Well, in a similar sense, John is saying some people can be saved 20 years or go to church for 30 years yet eat like a spiritual baby, where they just put anything in their mouth. They don't check to see if it's actually food or good food. They're not discerning. They don't test it. So how do we test the spirits? Like John is saying here, well, we test it all teaching with Scripture. That's the application for number one. Test all teaching with Scripture. Before we listen to a Christian song on the radio, and I use Christian in quotations because there are some songs on Christian radio that I think are questionable, and there are others that are great. I love Christian radio. I'm for it. But uh, before you listen to a song on Christian radio, watch a preacher on YouTube, or read a spiritual book, we need to do what I've seen our family dog do many times. He always sniffs something before he eats it. We need to sniff first. You've heard of the smell test, right? We need to sniff spiritual content because Jesus gave the following warning during his ministry. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He, he meant that they will look like they're harmless. They, will, they, will, they may have a sheep's skin on after they killed a sheep, took the skin off of him, they have the skin on them, but... Inwardly, they are really ravenous, hungry wolves. They are, they are looking to devour your faith. And they, and they, they may smell, no, they won't smell like, I'm oh, sorry, a sheep. They might a little bit, but what Jesus is saying is, look more closely, don't just look at the outward appearance. Look more closely and smell and see and perceive and discern. Is this for real? Are, are they a real sheep or a wolf? Now, I want to try and get more practical here than 
just saying test all things with scripture because I, as I was writing this message, I felt like, you know, that, that's not going to be, y'all are going to hear that. You're sharp people. You're going to go, well, duh, okay, but how? It's a big Bible. So let me boil things down a little more, get a little more practical for you. And I'm going to give you five doctrinal test questions. I'm not giving you a test. Don't worry. Don't you panic. I'm not going to ask you these questions. These are things you can use to test whether something is real, legit, authentic teaching from Scripture. By the way, these uh, five questions I'm going to give you can be used when looking for a biblical counselor, a Christian school, a Christian lawyer, uh, on and on and on. I could give you several examples. These are good vetting questions to, to run through a grid. And so here's the first one. What does this person believe about the Scriptures? What do they believe about the Scriptures? Uh, we believe the scriptures of the Old Testament and New Testament are verbally inspired by God and inerrant in their original writings. The 66 books of the, of the scriptures, of the Old and New Testament, are God's complete and sufficient revelation. This means that the scriptures carry God's authority for the total well-being of mankind. They are eternal in duration, final in authority, the standard of faith and practice, and sufficient to counsel every issue in life. So what you need to look for and listen for is what does this teacher, this author, speaker believe about scripture? And sometimes you can tell what they believe by what they don't say. For example, if the scriptures don't ever come up in the message, they're saying God's word is not really important. Or if the scripture just sort of sprinkled in to their talk, but they never really teach the scriptures in their context, they're saying, eh, I'm going to use God's word to back up what I already decided to say. And that's not good either. Second question, what does this person believe about the Trinity? The Bible teaches there is one God who eternally exists in three persons that are distinct, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three have precisely the same nature, attributes, and perfections. All three are worthy of worship, confidence, and obedience. Jesus existed before creation, became God in the flesh, and was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit indwells, guides, instructs, fills, comforts, and empowers genuine believers for godly living. He is a seal and a deposit for those that have received Christ by faith, and they get the Spirit at the point of their conversion. So listening and discerning, what does this person, this book, this author, this teacher believe about Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Do they believe they're all God? Do they believe they're all uh, deity So and worthy of worship? Number three, what does this person believe about the condition of man? The condition of man. God's Word declares that all human beings are sinful by their own choice, under God's condemnation, without excuse, and in need of redemption. Every man and woman on earth is born totally depraved, needing God's grace, God's forgiveness, and a Savior. That means we're not all good people, because God doesn't see us that way. That means you shouldn't listen to what Oprah says about all people being good and having good in their hearts. That is not true. Because God's word says, even if we do good, we still have sinful motives in our heart because of why we want to do good and what we're trying to get out of doing good. 
Next, number four, what does this person believe about eternal life? The scriptures teach that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins as a substitutionary sacrifice, then was resurrected three days later, resurrected himself three three days later, and he appeared to more than 500 witnesses. More on this next week. But salvation comes through repentance alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Anything less or more is a false gospel. Number five. Is what they're saying supported in multiple places in Scripture? We believe Scripture should interpret Scripture. And so if you hear something being taught that cannot be found elsewhere in Scripture, then it might be false. A church doctrine or belief about God should never be formed by looking at just one Bible verse. The doctrines of the Protestant evangelical faith have been formed and assembled by scholars looking at, for example, on the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? And it's not just one verse they look at. They look at several verses across the Scriptures. And they take those verses and they put them into a bucket and go, okay, what does all these verses say about the Holy Spirit? Now we can say these things about the Spirit because of what all these verses say. And that's because... God didn't write things in the Bible about the Spirit all in one place or in one book. It's spread out throughout the Scriptures. That's called systematic theology. So, test all teaching with Scripture, because real Christians are discerning instead of dupable. Look back at your Bible with me to verses 2 and 3. John continues and says, "...by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses..." that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. Here's number two in your outline. Authentic preachers proclaim the gospel Jesus preached. Authentic preachers proclaim the gospel Jesus preached. John says, every spirit that confesses, it's a Greek word, homologeo, it it means to say the same thing or to agree with something. In other words, John is saying, whoever says what we do about Jesus is for real. Jesus began his preaching ministry in Mark chapter 1 with this simple message, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, he succinctly stated it also in John 3.16, a verse that many of you know and many of you probably have seen on TV or on billboards. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One of the devious tricks you need to be aware of that false teachers are using today is not by changing Jesus' message, though. It's by leaving parts out that people won't want to hear. It's very crafty. So it sounds true. But as I've told my kids, a half-truth is a whole lie. You can't just say part of the truth, leave out the rest, and think it's okay. But that's what they're doing. Because... It doesn't raise any flags for the undiscerning spiritual baby. Oh, they said, I need Jesus for forgiveness. Okay, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, they said, I can live forever and that God loves me. I like that. I'll take that. That's good. Sign me up. 
but they leave out repentance. And leaving sin to follow Christ. You see, we like to hear, for God so loved the world. That's awesome. Love that. We don't want to hear, repent and believe. Jesus said both. And what he actually meant in John 3.16 when he said, whoever believes in him, Jesus meant believing by repenting and following. That's the proof of your faith. It's more than an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is. To repent simply means to put feet to your faith, to turn from your sin, and to turn and follow the Lord. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart. The Apostle Paul warned us that the watering down of the gospel message would happen someday when he wrote these verses in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I won't have you turn there for the sake of time, but it'll be on the screen behind me. Paul told Timothy, his protege in ministry, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So, so, so Paul's saying, hey, hey, Timothy, the time's coming, and it's coming soon, and I think it's been here now a long time in, in America, and it's where, where people are going to go, yeah, I don't want to hear that whole gospel preaching that tells me I need to repent also and believe. I think I want to go to this church that tells me what I want to hear and makes my ears feel good and makes me feel comfortable and, 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 and doesn't tell me I need to change. I like that. But here's the thing. Um, the purpose of the worship service and the purpose of opening God's word is never ever to make somebody feel comfortable. It's that they would encounter God. And sometimes encountering God is comforting, and sometimes encountering God is convicting. But our goal here at Vanguard is that when you leave this service, you go home going, I met with the Lord today. And sometimes it's going to be, man, I met with the Lord today. It's awesome. He loves me. I found out his love never gives up. His love never runs out. He's, he's always there for me. It's great. And sometimes you're going to leave on a Sunday, and you're going to go, golly, I got some stuff to work on. And that's good, too. The Greek word that Paul uses here for preach is keruso. It means to proclaim or to herald. It was a, a reference to messengers back in that day. They would proclaim a message from the king who had dispatched them. Now, let me give you a definition for preaching that I've been working on for a while um, because I want to clarify what preaching is and what it's not. And it makes a difference because... True gospel teachers actually preach. Preaching is to boldly declare the authority of God's word with urgency and without apology. That's what it was in the scriptures. It's not a Sunday school talk. It's not a motivational speech. It's not meant to be uh, a pep talk of some kind that you would hear in the locker room at a football game. 
The message must originate from the word or else it is not preaching. If a minister gets his message from somewhere else, like his own wisdom, secular psychology, motivational books, business magazines, things like that, and then sprinkles in some Bible verses on top of it, like it's a Sunda, Sunday, whatever you want to call it, from Dairy Queen, it's not preaching. It doesn't matter how many verses you sprinkle on top, it's not preaching. Preaching communicates what the original authors of Scripture wanted to communicate to their original audience. Now, God's Word must be taught with urgency and authority because of who it comes from and who it's going to. It's not, if it's not taught with urgency, we would procrastinate doing it. And if it's not taught with authority, we would consider it optional. But it's taught with urgency and authority because it's from God. It's his message to us. And because God said it, we should do it. And so that's why when I preach and I study the scriptures in my devotional life, I, kinda, I just take this simple approach. I'm pretty simple-minded. Um, if you've known me long enough, you know that about me. But God said it. That settles it. Let's do it. That's kind of been one of the mottos of my faith in Christ. God said it, settles it, well, let's go do it. No debating it. No hemming and hawing. No, I don't know. I want to get a committee together and study this a little further. No, no. Just, let's just go do it. I need to pray about that some while. No, it says this is what you're supposed to do. So... To preach is to boldly declare the authority of God's word with urgency and without apology. None of the apostles, none of the prophets in the scriptures went, I'm sorry if this offends you a little bit. Just need to... The Lord sent me to tell you what you're doing, sin. <laughs> just saying, just saying. You know how they, people lead out today with just saying is, get ready, I'm going to offend you. That's nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> just saying. Well, you're doing sinning. Sorry, don't, don't hit me, please. No, they, they communicated it with authority and urgency and, apology, and no apology. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this? Listen for substance instead of watching style. Listen for substance instead of watching style. This is one of the ways that you can discern a false teacher. Why? Why should you do that? Because that's what the Lord is listening to. He's listening for substance. Some false teachers dress like celebrities, while others dress just like you and me. Some false teachers and prophets have book deals, while others have never written a book at all. Some have churches that are large enough to see from a satellite in space. And some false teachers have churches so small they don't even show up on Google Maps. But it doesn't matter. It's the content that you need to discern and listen to. What are they saying? Don't be impressed by the lights and the fancy suits or anything like that, or even their basic average Joe appearances. Listen to the content and sniff it. Does this smell like it's true, or does it smell like this is not quite lining up with what I've heard taught from the scriptures? 
All right, let's look at verses 4 and 5. Again, John continues to use pastoral language of concern, uh, like a father or a grandfather in the faith. He says, verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Here's number three on your outline. A sensitivity to the Holy Spirit can help identify false teachers. A sensitivity to the Holy Spirit can help identify false teachers. Now, even when I say that, I'm nervous about saying that because some people hear that and go, oh, all I have to do is rely on my feelings. No, 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 no. You see, it's not the only thing that can help. It's the second thing. The first thing should be the Word of God. But what some people like to do, sadly, because, and honestly, I just have to say this, I, I'm just saying, I think they're lazy. It's, it's hard work to learn the Scriptures and study them, so they'd rather put their feelings in first place and call it the Holy Spirit. And that's dangerous. You can't be sensitive to the Holy Spirit if you don't know the word that the Spirit inspired. Jesus said, the Spirit will only say what the Father once said. The Spirit does not speak on his own. That's in John 14 or John 16. And he will never contradict Scripture. So you can't know if it's the Spirit talking to you if you don't know the word the Spirit inspired. Now John says in verse 4, you have overcome them. There's been a lot of songs written about this. I've got a few popping into my head right now that I've heard on Christian radio, and that's great. What he's referencing, though, is that false teachers or antichrists that were attacking the church, um, they are weaker than the spirit that indwells true believers. Several years ago, Maya and I were in between ministry positions back east, and we uh, needed to find a church in town to attend until we were able to move on to our next assignment. We ended up visiting one of the more popular, larger churches in the community where we lived, and we had heard some good things about this church. Unfortunately, when we sat through the service, uh, the worship part, and I'm going to use quotations in worship part, it was uncomfortable for us because the band played a secular song that mentioned nothing about the Lord, had nothing to do with worship. And then on some of the worship songs they played, well, all the other worship songs they did play, they never encouraged the people present to engage in worship with them. It was like a concert. So that already was a what we would call a check in our spirit. We just felt, mm, just something doesn't feel right here. Well, when the pastor got up to start his message, our level of discomfort worsened because he never opened his Bible, nor did he ask us to. And his message was sort of like a motivational speech you might hear at a business seminar. A few minutes later, we walked out of the service. We debriefed in the parking lot, and as Maya and I talked, we left that church that day realizing that the Spirit was grieving in us and convicting us to get out of there. And the only reason we could 
sense that and feel that is because we were in the Word regularly. We knew the Word. We knew what a service was supposed to be, and we knew what the Word says about things. We knew what worship was supposed to be because of what the Word says about worship. And we knew that ain't it, and that ain't it. This is not pleasing the Lord. doesn't matter how many people are showing up. And this is a church of three to 4,000 people, supposedly, by the way. And I'm not saying all big churches are false churches. Again, it's not about the size. There are big, healthy churches and big, unhealthy churches. There are medium, healthy, and unhealthy churches, and there are small, healthy, and unhealthy churches. It's the content that matters. Needless to say, we left that church that day and told each other we're never going back there. So, application for number three, what do we do with the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit? Well, increase your spirit sensitivity by practicing the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are simply uh, personal Bible study, prayer, worship, confession, uh, fellowship with other believers. If you're not doing these on a regular basis, you will subtly, slowly lose your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. It is a... It's like building calluses on your fingers. You just slowly start to lose feeling that you're supposed to have. But practicing these consistently will help keep your walk with the Lord close. And the closer your walk with the Lord is, generally speaking, the greater your sensitivity is to the Spirit, where you'll get spirit flags that go off in certain situations. Oh, that is not good, because I know what God's Word says about this. So... A sensitivity to the Holy Spirit can help identify false teachers in addition to knowing the word. Look at verse 6, our final verse that we're going to look at this morning. John wraps up his thoughts on this topic by saying, We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Here's number four in your outline. Authentic ministers of the gospel submit to authority. They submit to authority. There are two types of authority that they submit to. So here's letter A under number four. The first is apostolic authority. Apostolic authority. John says, whoever knows God listens to us. Us meaning the apostles that were with Jesus or the descendants of, of the original, like, like Paul, the original group. Real ministers don't invent new teaching or reinvent the old teaching. They simply teach what the apostles taught. They don't add to it or subtract from it. They don't have a new word from God because the old word is still just as good. It doesn't need to be changed. It's timeless. The Spirit only promises to empower God's Word. One of the keys to success for giant companies like Starbucks is that individual stores only produce and sell what headquarters tells them to. This allows them to maintain a unity and a consistency in control of their brand so that you can go into a Starbucks store here in Bakersfield or go into a Starbucks in Oklahoma and get the same kind of coffee and a similar experience. This is why you will never see a Starbucks store selling Folgers. Can you imagine the anarchy that would take place 
if a Starbucks store went, nah, we want to sell Folgers instead. I mean, there's, I think the whole marketplace would just fall apart, the economy would tank, and you know, the, the Dow Jones would just, poof, thousand points, right? And it would be unheard of, right? Just, you can't do that. You're supposed to sell Starbucks at every location. Well, in a similar fashion, authentic ministers submit to what headquarters tells them to teach. And that's written right here. You can't go off the rails and do your own thing if you want to be an authentic minister. Second type of authority that elder, excuse me, ministers submit to, and that's elder authority, letter B. Elder authority. Authentic ministers submit to a team of elders so that their doctrine stays in line with Scripture. Uh, we learned last year when I taught through Titus that um, one of the purposes of an elder team is to protect the doctrine of the church, to sort of be the quality assurance managers, to make sure that what's being taught in the church is in line with Scripture. First uh, Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 talk about that. Biblical elders are not businessmen, per se, that know how to grow an organization. They, they first off are men of the word, men that know the word and can smell something and go, that's not, that's not right. This is what we're supposed to do instead. It helps that they have business skills, but it's not absolutely necessary. What's more important is that they know God's word well. This is why a church with weak heretical teaching will often have weak elders. Because they allow that to happen. So the application, our final one for today. Beware of listening to teachers with no training or accountability. Just as letting a brain surgeon operate on you who only has a junior college degree in biology... And no accreditation would be foolish. It's also foolish to let an untrained preacher do surgery on your soul. Or a preacher who has no accountability. There are, of course, rare exceptions in which a minister may not have professional theological training, but makes up for it with a ferocious study habit. And he is respected by credentialed evangelicals that are trained. An example would be um, A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors. You've heard me quote many times. Uh, something that's unique about him is that he never actually went to seminary. However, he was mentored by people that did have professional theological training. He was a ferocious studier, and he was endorsed by those that did have credentials and thus respected, because everything that Tozer taught and wrote was on target but he's a rare guy. He, he, he was rarely gifted by the Lord. Uniquely gifted, excuse me. When I was a student at Dallas Seminary, I had to sign a statement agreeing to return my degree if I deviated from the school's doctrinal statement and went off the rails. And rightfully so. I'm glad they did that. I had to make a similar commitment when I was ordained as a gospel minister in my first church. Uh, I was asked by an ordination committee uh, to agree that if I decided to change my views uh, on certain top, the main doctrines of Scripture, that I would renounce my ordination or turn it back in. That's good. That's good. 
I'm, I'm for that. So beware of listening to teachers with no training or accountability. It, it generally applies, you, you should look at where did this person go to school at? Or when, you know, when I, I'm checking out a book, I flip it over and I read the back cover and I go, where did this author get his training at? Just like you would do the same if you were going to take your child to a doctor to have major surgery done, you'd be looking at like, did he go to junior college or did he get a degree from UCLA, UCLA School of Medicine? You want the best for your child. And generally speaking, that's true in theology circles. Well, uh, although there have been false teachers in every generation since the Christian church began, there also have been true teachers of the word to protect and feed the church. Uh, Dr. John Charles Ryle was one of many heroes in different generations the Lord has used to protect and feed the church. In Dr. Ryle's generation, he, was a, he served in the 19th century as an evangelical bishop uh, in Great Britain. As a champion of the gospel, Dr. Ryle boldly called out the Church of England for its downward spiral into ritualism and liberalism. In his book called Warnings to the Churches, he wrote this timeless reminder for us to read in the 21st century. Dr. Ryle says, If anyone should ask me, what is the best safeguard against false doctrine? I answer in one word, the Bible. The Bible regularly read, regularly prayed over, regularly studied. We must read it habitually, diligently, intelligently, and prayerfully. This is a point on which I fear many fail. In an age of hurry and activity, few read their Bibles as much as they should. A Bible-reading congregation is the strength of a church. I chuckled when I saw that many were hurrying and busy with activity in the 19th century. And I thought, oh my goodness, what would he say today? Let's be that kind of church, that kind of church, a strong church that devours God's word and delights in God's word and shares it with others. Let's be a strong church that is grounded in the word of God so that we cannot be led astray by false doctrine or false teaching because real Christ followers are discerning instead of dupable. And dupable is a real word. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for John's boldness mixed with pastoral care and concern. Thank you, Lord, for using him in the sunset of his life to pen a letter that is so pragmatic and useful to us today. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit, for using the Spirit to inspire the authors of Scripture to write timeless truth down. And thank you that that same spirit is alive and active today. Thank you that he resides in those who have repented of their sin and by faith trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. 
Lord, if there's anyone here today or listening online that does not know Christ personally as their Savior, would you please reveal Jesus to them? Would you bring them to an authentic, personal, intimate relationship with your Son so that they can have peace and forgiveness and eternal life and so much more? Father, for those that are here today or listening online that perhaps have been listening or to teachers or reading books that they shouldn't be reading because they are false. Lord, would you please use your spirit to reveal that? Would you reveal it in your word where the teaching of scripture disagrees with that false teacher so that their heart, their soul is protected? And finally, Lord, would you use us as a church to hold forth your word in the true gospel that Jesus preached? Would you use our church to raise up hundreds, if not thousands, of quality, strong disciples here in this county? Would you use us, Father, to transform this community and to tear down strongholds that the adversary has established here. We know that you can, that we ask if you will. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.